Hello, everyone, and welcome back to season three of Relative Pitch. Oh my gosh. First of all, I can't even believe we're on season three. Like, it really feels like we just started last week, and now we're back season three. Um, I mean, I feel like we've all grown in the last, you know, couple of years. I mean, we don't talk about COVID, who is she, you know, we've been inside, but honestly, even though we've been inside, us three have been working, okay? We have not stopped. So first of all, y'all, how are y'all, okay? How are you? Tired. <laughs> very, very tired. Okay, okay. Waking up at five every single day, Monday through why, Friday. Why are you getting up at five? Yeah, tell us, tell us. Oh, since we last talked. Uh-huh. Last time we talked, I was a grad student. Grad yes. And now I'm the adjunct yes. professor of trumpet at the University of North Georgia. Yay. And I am a chamber music coordinator and brass instructor. And, you know, at a high school, middle school, you know, you got to do what we do for the kids. It's all yes. for the kids. It's all for them. It's really mm-hmm. all for them. And so now you're getting in the teaching world. Um, and now you have to get up at five o'clock. So, huh. Now you know what it feels like. Oh, now you're the grad student. I forgot. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Speaking of which, Anthony. Yeah, you know, I have transitioned from being a teacher um, to being a grad student slash still teaching a little bit um, at the University of Georgia, where I'm getting my master's go in instructing, go jogs. Um, it's actually been so much fun. Um, like this already, I mean, we've been in school for like two and a half weeks and just getting to conduct and have conducting lessons and just back in school, I'm loving it. Like I just, I love it. Um, I have this like theory class that I'm in right now and I'm loving it, okay? We are just breaking down tonality, which, you know, I love. So it's actually a really great thing. So Lauren, where are you? Cha, we done moved again, Cha. So- you were the most moving person. <laughs> Actually, we have all moved together every single time. I will have to say that. that okay, is- well, you cover more distance. That is true. You know, I just like to, I like the, to see the country. You know, okay. I, you know, it's so funny. Um, yeah, because last time we, we did record, I think we were all still in our, our other places. Yeah. I am now up on the, the Northwest um, in Seattle. Uh, where I'm doing a little bit of mix. Like I, so first of all, I'm working at the Seattle Symphony right now, which is crazy to say, because like I just had started getting into nonprofits and then now to be working for such a gigantic one that is also a symphony orchestra, y'all, it's crazy. It's a fellowship. It's, I'm going to be learning so much about it. I'm so excited. Um, It's a mixture of like education, but also like actually working there. And I'm in the education and community engagement department, which you already know, that's what I am. That's what I do. So it's just, it's been amazing. And um, I actually start in about three or so weeks, my doctoral studies at the Uh university. (laughs) Doctorate, doctorate. Your doctorate, your doctorate. (laughs) Yeah, it's so it's crazy, honestly, because I have to I have to say the fact that when we started this, we were all undergrads 
like undergrad. Do you hear what I am saying? Do you hear the words I am speaking to you? We were undergrads yeah. when we started this and we are all either like hey in our grad schools or we are teaching professionally and it's, or have already taught professionally. It's just, it's insane. No, I, like I said, I look back on the last three years and I'm just like the amount of growth, um, the amount of this, I guess, experience that we've we've all you know kind of witnessed in these three years have been very mm -hmm. crazy like i i mean even at relative pitch from you know gma and presenting at different sessions and each one of us having our own different things as well like it it's a lot um and some days like i think wow what am I really doing I was like man I don't feel like I'm doing enough and then I really look at it I've done a lot at, and we are all under the, we are either 24 or under that's, it's a lot. It's a lot because to others, we are still in the beginning of our careers. And I feel like I've been doing this for the past 10 years of my life. It's very true. Like it, I, I talk to people, they're like, oh, how old are you? And I'm like, oh, I'm 23. And they're like, they just like kind of look at me and they're like, you have no idea, like either how far ahead you are or how much you still have to come, you right, know? Right. And it is so easy, especially now for us to go, I'm not doing a lot. Like, I don't feel like I'm doing, cause you feel like you have to be doing something all the time to be considered yeah. legit. But when you look back at it and you just have, you have to be honest with yourself and be like, yo, we've been putting in work, like, as you said, as a collective, but also as individuals, like yeah. from, from the beginning, from the jump, honestly. I hate when people ask my age. Well, like, I children, children, children or older? No, not even children, like children, that's fine. They're kids. They are children, adults, colleagues. It don't matter. I don't ask people's age. I don't come up to you. Hey, how old are you? Oh, wow. You've lived so long. No, that don't matter. When I we are in a work environment, when we are t discussing pedagogy, mm. all that matters is if you can do it or not. That is it. It do not matter how many years you've been doing it. It don't matter how many years you studied it. It, and that might kind of matter, um, <laughs> but in a reverse way. Um, but all that matters is if you can do it or you can't, mm. or if you're working at it. Mm. Yeah. If you are stagnating, there is no such thing as stagnation. Stagnation equals decline. You are declining if you are stagnating. And I, this is just a PSA to people. Stop asking people's age and start asking them about who they are mm. and what they like to do mm. outside of what we do as work. Because yeah. that is just as important. I just took a whole 200 kids of a band program through a schedule building exercise that I do with my college students. And it, they really got to see, wow, I'm stressed due to the fact I don't take 30 minutes out of every day and just exist as Nate, put your name here. And I know it's hard to find those 30 minutes. Honestly, sometimes you got to wake up earlier or sometimes you just got to be like, I cannot do this. I will have to pull back on this. But yeah, I hate I've also had a lot last um, a loss of hair since we started this podcast. 
not because of the I will have to say it's not because we're pulling his hair out or anything. It's just because Michael likes to look like Thanos, like a redneck Thanos. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's like that girl who had too much plastic surgery. Yeah, like, oh my gosh, she said that. She said it. Listen, it look, but the thing about it is Michael looks good with a shaved head. Like, not a lot of people can pull off a good shaved head, but you have the right head. I know I rounded it when I was a child. I was going to yeah. say, people, people look like Pinhead Larry. <laughs> <laughs> Bruh, but no, I want to go, go just slightly go back to the whole age thing, because this is something we talk about a lot on here, because we all have, like, first of all, we, like Anthony mentioned, we are all 24 and under on this podcast, um, with me now being the only one who's under, but give me, give me about a month, give me about a month. Um, (laughs) but the thing about it is we are going to either already have been applying for jobs and spots or will be applying for jobs and spots that we're going to be up against people who are well into even their fifties. And so it can be a little like mentally, you're like, how, how can I fare up when it comes to, you know, putting my application against someone who's been in the field for 10, 20, 30 plus years and everything. But it's the same thing that I think about when I think about practicing, because you can be in a practice room technically for eight hours a day and get nothing done. It is not about the time you spend in there. It's about the intention and how well you spend your time when in there. Because something someone can do that takes them five hours may take you one. And that is just the truth about it. And so whenever I see on resumes, like wanting five years of experience, what if someone's five years of experience, I did it all in one? What if that was the case, right? You know what I mean? So you're kind of like limiting, and this is something for people who are getting into positions where you have high, you have hiring decisions and everything. Like think about that. Like, are you? Does it really matter if the same two people did the same two things? One did it over a year, one did it over five years. Like, think about that. You know? Yeah, because I mean, for me. Um, and I can speak about this freelier now. Uh, my two years at my previous school, that was a lot of experience. It was a lot. Um, I witnessed things and been a part of things that some people haven't even done in 10 years. Um, let alone teaching six through 12, you're naturally going to get your middle school experience, your high school experience, and everything in between. Um, so, because I've talked to some other directors, and I kind of look at it like you've been teaching longer than me. And I don't mean that in a cocky way or like I'm above this. No, I just really mean like you've never dealt with this situation before. Interesting. I dealt with that on like the third week of school, my first year. Um, And I do want to just go here really quickly. I think younger people in our field, especially as teachers, have more of a connection with the students than, say, older people. Um, There's a talk about vulnerability within, you know, teaching or whatever. Um, But really, that is you just need to listen to your kids. I've I've seen some directors who do not listen to their students. I learned that day one, uh, my first year, 
first job. Because the thing is, if I would have came in there with just, oh, this is how things are going to run, everybody was going to go. Everybody was going to go. You know? Instead, I sat down and I listened. And I was so tell me, what do you want to get out of this? What in your in your eyes is successful that is healthy for you? When is too much? My door is always open. Come and talk. I, me and one of our former guests, uh, Dr. Shiree X. Williams, um, we were having a conversation one day and he was just saying like how his door is always open. And I was like, absolutely. You know, when a student comes through the door, I don't care what I'm doing. I might be writing this long email, but guess what? I'm shutting the computer and I am listening. It's all about you. Because what I don't want to happen is a student leave my program and say, Mr. Morris did not care about me. Mm-hmm. That right there, I need to be out of the field of education. Because if a student feels that way about a teacher, they are not doing their job. Now, flip side, you cannot be their best friend. Absolutely. You are not their Wody. They talk about their relationships too, their little personal dramas too. Because like Anthony, like one of my biggest things is I want want kids to walk out of either my college classes, my middle school or high school is my, they call me Mr. Michael. It's very weird. Mr. Michael was hard on me. Mr. Michael had high expectations. It's not that I wanted that over your personal well-being. It's like, here's this. Let's take care of this as well. But we're not best friends. I got my friends. You got your friends. I can help you with certain things involving life. But like, I want, like, there has to be, you can't be their best friend. And that's where, that's another slippery, very slippery fast road that if you are when you falsely think you are caring about the students too much Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like i went down that road i had a breakdown because of it like there is a boundary between me and students now and there's a very hard boundary like that and that's it yeah it's it and that's the thing with again Somebody who's older would think young teachers cannot do that. Oh, it's by experience. No, it is very, the thing we've always, you know, especially like our generation and especially our generation under us, they create boundaries. They do. Like they literally like look at the, I see them in school settings. Like when they are with this group of friends, this group of friends, it's, there's a clear boundary. There's a clear and. They will also say, uh, this is too much mentally for me, too much. That's a great boundary. That is a great boundary. Always, if it's too much, let it be known. Let it be known. Um, And like you said, Michael, it is very, it's a thin line because you can go from caring to being friend. And when it becomes friend, it's a problem. And you can't go back. They have lost... The respect is gone now. The respect is gone. You are no longer Mr. or Mrs. Right. Or Dr. You are now whatever your first name is. Shorten at that. Oof. 
Well, the thing I will have to say as well as they, what we do, it gets embedded within them to a certain degree, no matter what we do. So in the sense of like, if we are creating boundaries with ourselves, they're also going to be doing the same thing, or they're also going to want to reflect the same thing, because that can kind of show them later on in life, or if they have a different teacher who may not be doing what you're doing by setting boundaries, maybe that your student will go, I'm setting my own boundaries because I have seen that reflected. Mm -hmm. So, and both of you in a very different way talked about how to care for your students in a different way that works to, works together perfectly because you have to show them obviously that you respect them as a person because they are people they're yeah. little people but they are people they and then also people. you respect them to know that they came there for a reason they are wanting to learn they need to they need that that discipline and structure that my michael was speaking to being like hard on them and not really it's just giving them something that is consistently structured and rooted and has a foundation you have to have both and yeah you you it's so easy to get wrapped up in all the things that are wrong with education go oh my students i need to care for them so much but Look, they they are these kids are so smart they're so smart they're so aware of what's going on in the world i think more i didn't know what was going on really in the real world in middle school barely high school too and now they know about all the causes that are happening. They know about all the social things that are going on. They know. They know what their parents are voting for. They know why their parents are voting for it. Like, it's, they are so aware. So they, if, again, it's, it will be shown in how you treat them, how they reflect that back to you. You know, it is a job that we have to do as educators. And just for, for, and this goes for any teacher, whether you're a private teacher public teaching there's a there's a um misconception that for my students to have fun I only have to be their friend honestly when students realize that you have an expectation for them of greatness and but you still respect their boundaries you respect their mental health and everything like that they're gonna have fun because it's like, we want to be here and this is how we're going to get here. But I am not going to push your boundaries and you're not going to push mine. And it's going to be this mutual respect. Trust in me that I'm the teacher, that I'm not going to lead you astray. And we are going to be on this journey together and we're going to have fun doing it. That is what is misconstrued nowadays because they think to have a, a great program a great you know studio i have to be their best friends oh my gosh i have to have them on instagram i gotta have them on you know facebook no selfies joke. right i gotta do a selfie you know we gotta text no 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 do not because that could get you in some hot water very quickly, very quickly. example this past week past two weeks like I started, I started a chamber music program. We have 33 ensembles. Woo. It's a lot. Four weeks ago, beginning of August, we started this. The past two weeks, I've had people be like, hey, I want to play with my friend. They're not in my group per se. I like playing with my group. But I also want to play with them. Can you find us a duet or a trio? Because we also want to be pushed outside of what we have for our group music. And I'm like, there you go. They are rising to the expectation. They're like, oh. We see that you're like teaching very fast. 
some people in our group are not exactly getting it. That's okay. Cause we're going to help them get their leaders. You're already teaching leadership. And then they're wanting to do more because I'm sorry, this is so cliche, but it's so true. Kids want to be good. Kids want to be good at something. They hate everybody. Almost everybody hates being bad at something because being bad at stuff sucks. And kids want to be good at something. Mm-hmm. Let the kids be good at something. Yeah. And so later in the season, we have um, two guests that will be joining us to talk about the boundaries um, being set. And that's so we're going to talk way more about those things. And I can't wait for that conversation because I really think um, that needs to be talked about and the, the the buzzword of vulnerability. But that'll be later in the season. So make sure you stay tuned because it's going to be really great. But um, so, y'all. Um, one of our dear friends, uh, Kevin J, which is a former guest, uh, sent me a um, a text. It was a screenshot, actually, of Valerie Coleman's post. And it was like, y'all need to speak about this on Relative Pitch. And I was like, of course we will. Of course we will. So really, um, to kind of summarize the post, and if you want to go see the post, Valerie Coleman, you fantastic musician first of all um but she said and i'll just paraphrase some she says i gotta say it it is an easy way for critics to compare new works that uh new works to what they know as western classical especially when it comes to critiquing the works of black composers and storied places where western traditionals define all classical music present past and future the works by Black composers always seem to end up being compared to white male composers who created the masterwork cornerstones and define how we learn to play and teach our instruments. So that's just the first paragraph of what she said. And she later um, just kind of brought up, and I love this, so I just want to say this here. She says, perhaps consider instead saying that Black composers' works sound like Copeland, try to see the presence of the Black church, gospel music, and spirituals where major triads and minor thirds flow um, from both faith and trial. Instead of saying it sounds like Dvorak, try to see that Dvorak's work were influenced by Black culture, not the other way around. Instead of having the expectation of hearing symphonic works with jazz influence that reminds you of your favorite big band composers, which she says she loves them too, consider that a Black composer has their own voice and that it might be rooted in a place you have yet to make the effort to understand. She spoke on that. She 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 really, like, and this got a, this is on Facebook, by the way, on her, her actual page. And it got a lot of, um, a lot of view, like interest, likes, shares, like over hundreds and hundreds of shares. Um, and it's so true because this idea, I still hate that we're talking about standards, but as long as we have masterwork concerts that are exactly the same everywhere, we're going to keep having this conversation. Um, and it is unfortunate for composers, especially black composers nowadays, that everything they do is going to be compared to what people have set as a standard of composition. And yeah, it's the Dvorak's, it's the, it's the Copeland's, it's the Beethoven's, it's the Bach, the box. Um, and I can't imagine how, how big of like imposter syndrome that can also cause for composers as well as like 
feeling like you can't even find your own voice because you're you write something that you feel like is so unique to yourself and then here comes some someone along going that sounds like copeland and then you're like oh my god did i did i do after copeland and you're like no obviously but at the same time when you have when you're always being compared to others who have in no way had an influence on your writing it does something mentally to you um i'm glad you brought it up yeah because it's like number one if i write some type of music and somebody ever says oh my gosh it sounds like copeland you know those open fists blah 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 it's like girl i didn't listen to copeland who the hell is that who is she? I don't know her. Who is Erin? Who is that? Okay. Wow. Appalachian Spring. I know that one. Don't ask me anything else. Okay. Don't ask. It was not an influence. What was an influence? The fits that were, you know, used as in the base for a gospel song or a spiritual or, you know, an R&B, you know, melody or something like that. So... I think really the whole aspect of anytime, and it's just not black music, but it's really any minority composer. We always get um, kind of looped in. Like we really sat down and we studied Bach, Beethoven, Mozart, and then we ended up writing like that. wrong. That is so wrong. This is something innately in us. It is something we've been listening to all of our time. I always say something about relevance. In the Black culture, and and I actually said this to my professor, I said, in the Black culture, we don't know who Beethoven, Mozart, all them, besides they are the white men with wigs, with white wigs that we learned about in elementary school for one day. Mm-hmm. You know, they were the only composers on your music classroom wall. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's the only, that is the only knowledge we have of these people. Our music do not sound like that. And if it does, you might want to, since we, since there are so many musicologists and people who love to study this old music and these old people, they should really actually study and see, did they hear that from a slave? Did they hear that from somewhere else? Because then you will make that connection. Then. No, Michael, you got it. You got it. I mean, the same thing can also be said for performing and for teaching. Oh, you teach and conduct like such and such. Mm. No. I teach like me. I conduct like me. I perform like me. Yeah. This ain't no copy and paste, baby. We ain't a Dell laptop. We ain't copy, paste, and replace. That that ain't us. Mm. Cool. And that's not at least who I teach my musicians to be. My students, I want them to be completely different from me. I want them to sound different. I want them to think differently. Because that is what it takes to be a modern musician. In any sense of the word. Composer, teacher, conductor, anything. I think this whole comparing, again, with the age, we ain't got to do it. How about we just like, oh, that is beautiful music. Mm. Oh, I really enjoyed what they did here. Not, oh, this sounded like 
such and such that he did hear such and such. They must have listened to such and such. Now, how would you say I really enjoyed that? That was a really good piece of music. One of the things from the same post that she says that I think is a really big point that I want to talk to is um, she writes, but for just once, I challenge these critics who are mostly white men themselves to look beyond their own perspectives and actually see the influence of the African diaspora um, and its culture in today's black composer um, and know there is a place for it within classical music. So mm. this idea, I think a lot, we are now talking a lot about personal perspectives, personal connections with music. And while yes, that is absolutely important, what she is saying here is to look beyond your own perspective. So not just saying, well, I grew up listening to 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 Bach and Beethoven, da 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 Because the thing about it, is as me and Anthony, as black musicians, we have gone through these classes where, no, we didn't grow up in our houses listening to no Bach, no Beethoven, no Mozart and all that. So listen, we understand that perspective. We can see from that perspective because we we had to literally be taught in music history about that perspective. So we were immersed in this. We were literally immersed in this. So not only do we have our own perspectives from our own cultures, religions, backgrounds, and everything, we also have this learned perspective through music school. So what she is saying here is that some people, white men specifically, only have to ever know and learn about their own perspective because where in our education are they learning about black music? Where are they learning? Like, where are they learning about music that is not from their own perspective? That is what she's saying. Speak. And, and let's pose that question. Let's actually pose that question. When do the majority have to learn about the minority? Besides in your tokenized settings of performing um, performative Black music. And I use that word um, because, oh, I am going to program a piece that sounds like jazz or that sounds like gospel. But you have pieces like by Florence Price, um, by William Grant Steele. Um, one of my favorite women pieces is Summerland. Yeah. It doesn't sound like black, you know, what they call black music. Well, what do, what does that mean? Did a black man write that? Did a black woman write that? Then it's black music. But what you in your head, you only hear the bum 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 bum. That's the only thing that you in your head have have put together is black music mm. is sorry to cut you off could that oh. go hand in hand with how mm, people assume how people are supposed to talk mm. mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and people assume how people are supposed to look based on just a name on a page mm -hmm. i think that goes hand in hand you know, it's like if you go to like I applied for to teach at HBCU this year and I was ready to check myself Monday through Friday. Mm. So the next week I was ready to check myself Monday through Friday again until I came 100 percent correct. Yes. Because there's things I don't know. But I was not going to walk in there and be like, all of you are not good musicians because you're not a classically classically trained school that teaches you how to do orchestra music primarily that and that's how many how many people gonna apply for that job think like that hmm. um, assumption 
or assuming will only make a fool out of you. Mm. Uh -uh. It will not make a fool out of me. Mm -mm. Because it is on your own, your own mind that you assume something of me. Did that come out of my mouth? Because if it didn't, you cannot hold me to that. Also something that I really just, I got a bad taste in my mouth immediately when I thought about this, this idea that these groups and organizations only, they will, they, when they, the idea of you um, commissioning work by a black composer and then being like, oh, I want it to sound black. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, what is, what are you saying, what you're trying to say? I hated it. Both of y'all were like, <laughs> like we wanted to be urban and ethnic, urban, you know? you know, because what annoys me is this notion that if it does not sound that is in that assumed way that they're thinking that it is then not black music. And mm -hmm. that is very, very annoying to me. And, and not even, you can think about that music. You can think about in that, the t uh, like clothing accents, dialects and everything. My black, black people, we are so diverse in our own cultures. We do not look the same. We do not sound the same. We do not dress the same. So why do you expect all of our music to sound the same? We are a spectrum. Yes. And that goes for every single minority. No matter if you're black, you are Latino, you're gay, whatever. Not all gay people are the same. No facts. No. Big, 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 big facts. Not. Like I love, it. I love me some drag race and everything, but I'm not gonna go to the next gay person and be like, you know about a drag race? Come on, RuPaul, you know? No, no. You're like, come on, girl, come on. Right. And I'm not gonna assume. I'm not. I'm not gonna assume that because if I go up to Michael and be like, oh my gosh, you know about drag race? And he's like, no, nor do I really care to. Who looked like a fool? You and do the so, only I love drag. I like Bianca. That's it. Mm, see? But my thing is when you assume something about a person or a thing, and you go up and you and you speak on that assumption. Yeah, you look you look like a fool. Mm. You do. So don't do that. And also, can we talk a little... Now, this is pivoting to another amazing post that came out this past... There have been a lot of just good posts coming out this past week by Nicole Jordan that talks to the idea that the reason as to a lot of the time why um, these organizations feel as if they have to compare Black composers to um, white male composers is because they're afraid if they don't, then no one will care. And mm -hmm. there's been that idea that no one's going to come up, come see a show that has a like a black composer or a concert that has a black composer featured unless they feel connected to it by a white composer that, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? And so this idea that like, I believe Nicole in the post is in another long post, please go read it yourself if you want to. But this idea, they did Florence Price's Symphony Number no. 1, which if you have heard this piece, know that this piece is amazing mm -hmm. and does not need to be compared to anyone else or anything else to stand mm -hmm. on the grandeur that is itself. Yes. And so she talks to this idea that they, they don't, the audiences don't want to hear this stuff. They don't want to hear this. They don't want to hear this. Lies. Mm. Lies. 
It's the type of audiences y'all want in your concert halls that may not come because you have only shown them the box, the Beethovens, the Mozarts, the Chopins, the list, and all that. Now my people will show up for it. We saw this with all the when the Malcolm X operas were coming up, when all the look with all these amazing shows, whenever the Met was doing a shut up in my bones, black people will come out to support or things that showcase black people and center and uplift black people, black stories, black voices. So don't, don't please, we're done. Cut. Immediately. You, know, you really want to know why though? You want to know why we show up? It's because the masses count us out. Mm -hmm. You count us out from being in this classical setting. And I would say for the most part, we're like, okay. How much you want to that movie was looking shook when they saw not everybody wearing suits? Because mm -hmm. the thing is, Black people, what we have kind of, you know, uh, we have kind of just been like used to now through all these generations. It's like, we we going to stay, you know, low key. We are always going to be in reserve. But when those moments of like a classical art, we're going to come out. And that goes for anything else in any other medium. When you count us out in sports and then we have Serena Williams. And Tiger Woods supporting Serena and, Williams. Right. And you have these people um, who are doing great things in a sport that is not welcoming to Black people. Guess who's going to show up? Mm. And big too. Okay. I've never seen, I remember growing up, I've never seen so many black people watch golf before. Never. Never. They, they were glued to that TV when Tiger was hitting. Exactly. And they and now I mean, I, I'm not a golf person, but I don't is there another black golfer? There's one coming up. Okay, so coming up, so you know, right going like, to be behind, you know, behind that person. But the thing is like. Here is somebody succeeding mm. in a in a field that everybody has counted them out. Mm. We're gonna support it. That's what we're going to do. Um, and in the post that Nicole, you know, spoke about, she was saying like how she was just so moved by seeing all these people stand up for a very unconventional or non-traditional program. Anchored by three women of color. And I, I want to highlight as well that Nicole Jordan is like the principal librarian of, librarian of the Philadelphia Orchestra. And also Valerie Coleman, for those of you who do not know, is an amazing um, uh, chamber musician, composer, flutist, um, Grammy nominated. And so these are two, like, um, first of all, amazing examples for me as black women within this realm that I am in and the fact that they are using their both have very high platforms and the fact that they're using their platforms to speak on these issues are amazing and that's this that's if we want to talk about standards baby that's the standards I want to see that's what I want to see is when we get in these positions you up you get in those positions and you use them you mm -hmm. use them because everyone else will and they are <laughs> you know uh-huh because they do I mean, look at corporate world when uh, said child that was a C student get into the business world. And then next thing you see, they like 
a CEO or, or up in there. Mm. Mm. They were not challenged in your class and they checked out. Well, that's one thing I think flip the script on the talk about the reason they program all these masterworks concerts is because there is a disconnect with the younger audience. And it's not only because of the repertoire they're selecting it's because the waves of educators, people band director, band, sorry, band directors. Ugly. Ugly. Do not teach kids to like music. Mm. Half of them teach them to be good at band mm. and force them to be good at band and do not expose them to different genres, areas, and things in music. I told, I tell high schoolers all the time, I don't care if you major in music. I would rather you probably not unless you are in love with it so much that it is in your soul to wake up every day and do it. I just want you, when you leave here, to love music mm. in any facet and be able to respect any kind of music, even if it's music you don't like to listen to. That is my goal as an educator. And that is not every music educator's goal. Mm. And that is a problem. And that is why there's so many struggling ensembles. I mean, like, they're in bands so much. Why the professional bands? That's a big question. If there's so many bands, why are they professional bands? Also, even if you are in band, you can go listen to an orchestra one time. Take your kids and be like, hey, this is something else. Or like, be like, hey, here's chamber music. Hey, here's a jazz band. Hey, here's a brass ensemble. Hey, there's a, a reed quartet. You can just name all the ensembles that appear in our genre that are being created new. Half the kids don't know about it. Because band directors think the most important thing when they walk into a class is to get their piece done. Boo-boo, no. The most important thing when those kids walk into your class is that you educate them. Mm. And it might be a band class, but you are teaching music. And if you don't teach music, you are failing them. If you teach them how to be good band players, wow. C+. Plus. Music. It is music that drives us. It's music that made you get the career in the first place. Mm. Why did you stop teaching it? That's all I got to say. I think that's part of the reason audiences are dying. Like there's no appreciation for arts because the people who are in those roles do not teach people about it. They teach them how to play. They teach them how to sing in a choir, how to play an orchestra, how to play band. Nothing else around it. But also, it's just not relevant to them. And that's kind of what I was going to say is being in Seattle. Listen, I have friends who go out every single weekend to different clubs, going to hear different DJs, different sets, different people, like artists who they may not even like fully be like, I know all their music, but they're like, oh, I like one of these songs and they're coming. I want to go hear them. The thing about when with this, the new age music that's coming out. People will just enjoy being in that environment. They enjoy hearing new music. What if we were to put that culture within the class scores? Like, oh, I mean, they're playing something new this weekend. Do we just want to go here, see what's kind of going on? You know what? What? Yes, <laughs> do that. That is where I think it's not music that's not being taught. Is that it's not relevant. Music mm -hmm. is being taught regardless. 
Like I have walked into many places. The boring music that has been that is the same freaking thing that's been happening for the past 200 years that music has been around or has been taught like this is the same way. They uh, somebody said this over the summer. They said if you were to pick somebody from 1803, a music student, and place them into a rehearsal right now, mm. they would know what to do. Absolutely. Because it hasn't changed. And if it hasn't changed for a person from 1803 to now, and we still expect the, the people that are in front of us now to care, this is outdated. It's outdated. So you need to make it relevant to the kids. Stop always thinking that these classical works by these cornerstone composers are the only thing you need to expose children care. to. They don't care. They don't care that they're old. Like, Let me tell have, you, you, have you discussed in your classroom Beyonce's album? Ooh, no, we, uh, we need a whole episode for that. Let's not even get into that. But, you know, have you <laughs> exposed them to groups like Tame Impala? Mm, have you exposed them? I mean, uh, freaking um 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 uh, Lil Nas X. That is a queer rapper. When out? Uh, when when has that happened? Because remember, we're music teachers. Mm. We're not classical music teachers, and I think that needs to start. From a long, from collegiate all the way down, or from down all the way up to collegiate. However, you look at that spectrum, it all needs to change. And until then, our audiences, our audiences are still going to die until we provide something that they can relate to. That is where appreciation of music comes from. Hmm. Cha. We done said a whole lot. Hmm. I I'm excited to be back, y'all. Like I'm I, excited I, too. I've missed this. I've missed y'all audiences. We have missed you. We we've missed these conversations. Um, and I don't. I'm excited to just get back into this because there's so much. As much as we like to uh, con like congratulate ourselves for all the progress that's happening, we're still stepping back. We're still going back, and there are still groups and people who are not coming forward with us. So there is still work to be done. Um, there's still conversations that are needed to be had. We are excited. Um, and Michael, how many plush toys do you have? I, I only have a. <clears throat> I only have a Cheshire cat. He has an obsession. Capybara. I got him the capybara. Show us the capybara. There we go. <laughs> well, I'll show you my dog, but he's sleeping. That's okay. But I He'll love an appearance later this season. Right, yeah. Guess with Jaeger. Guess with Jaeger. But all right, y'all. Well, we hope that this that you have enjoyed this first episode. We are excited. We have some amazing, amazing guests coming on this next uh, season. We have some awesome yeah. things up in the works. So stick around with us. Anyone who's new, welcome, welcome. Um, this is not your average podcast. Like we, we're real. We talk about real things. We're real people. So we'll keep it real. Keep it relative. All right. And we'll see y'all next time. Bye. Bye.